You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 15th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. The Briefing is brought to you in association with Alliance Partners. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippie. Coming up on today's programme, we'll get the latest from Ukraine as Moscow reports advances in the battlefield, while Kyiv continues to ask for faster military aid. Then... In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now, that it is right for me, for my party and for the country. Scotland's First Minister Nicola Sturgeon announces her resignation after eight years in power. Also at Low emission zones cost the taxpayer money, simple as. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom, and that cannot be right. Good urban planning becomes the next battle point for the Conservatives. We'll look at why 15-minute cities are causing an outrage in the UK. Plus the latest fashion news too, as Louis Vuitton appoints Farrell Williams as its new creative director of menswear. All that right here on the briefing with me, Marcus Hippi. As the first anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine gets closer, fighting in the eastern parts of the country seem to intensify. Russia has now been reporting battlefield advances. It says its troops have managed to break through two fortified lines of Ukrainian defences in the eastern front. The governor of Luhansk has, however, claimed that Ukrainian defences are holding against Russian attacks. This comes as Kyiv has been requesting for faster military aid from its allies ahead of a predicted larger attack by Russia to mark the first anniversary of the invasion. Joining me for more is Stephen Diel, Russia analyst and a regular Monocle 24 contributor. Welcome back to the programme, Stephen. First of all, how much do we know for sure about the situation in eastern Ukraine now? It strikes me that um, there's the old adage that the first casualty of war is the truth. And um, I think, if I may use another cliche, there's the fog of war. In the fog of war at the moment, we're, we're getting apparently contradictory reports from both sides. It's in the interests, of course, both of the Russian side and the Ukrainian side, to give the impression that, uh, that, that things are going well for their side. Um, so it's, it's difficult to know exactly what's happening. I think, apparently, from what we're hearing from intelligence from the West as well, there have been some... I would say minor Russian advances. I mean, even in even in their propaganda, the Russians are claiming that, I quote, um, Ukrainian troops randomly retreated to a distance of up to three kilometers. In, in the greatest scale of things, that's not a great deal. Um, you know, pushing back three kilometers really doesn't signi- uh, signify a great breakthrough. Um, and I, I think that we have to realize that the Russian side is particularly keen not only to try and make the West think that it's stronger than it is, but also it's speaking to its own people. Russia has got a huge problem. You know, it started this war nearly a year ago. It had the idea that within three days it was going to seize Kiev, the capital, kick out Zelensky or arrest him or kill him and his government, um, take over Ukraine effectively. And that was pretty well a short-lived hope. Um, 
a year later, you know, they're, they still hold parts of eastern Ukraine. Um, there's been this stalemate throughout the winter so far. And, of course, winter is coming towards its end. Um, and they have to talk it up and they have to say to their people, you know, we're really doing well when perhaps they're not doing as well as they try to portray it. As you point out, Moscow is under a lot of pressure to claim wins in the region, or at least to make it look like that. But how credible is the information we're getting from from, from Kyiv then and from the Western partners? What is that propaganda like? Undoubtedly, there is propaganda on the Ukrainian side and, and the Western side, um, particularly from the Ukrainian side. The Ukrainians, again, they've got to talk to their own people and say, we're doing well. And to be fair to them, um, one of the things that's really shocked the Russians is just how strongly the Ukrainians are fighting. A crucial point here, Russia tries to draw parallels with the Second World War and it says how, you know, how their troops fought. Indeed, the Soviet troops then fought. They were fighting for their own country. Russian troops in eastern Ukraine do not believe that they're fighting for their own country on the whole. Ukrainian forces, of course are fighting for their own country. They're on their own soil. They, their aim is to drive the Russian troops out of their soil, just as at, in the Second World War, the Soviet troops were driving the German forces out of their country. So um, I, if, you know, on balance, I would say, yes, of course, there's propaganda on both sides. But I think the Ukrainians have to use less propaganda because they've got their nation on their side. So, so what is your impression of the situation? Then there's been a lot of a lot of reports of record numbers of Russian dying in the warfare now in recent days and recent weeks. And now, for example, the UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace said that almost the entire Russian army is now in Ukraine. Yeah, that again, I would be interested to know from Mr. Wallace where he's taking the figures from. Um, it, does he mean the size of the army as it was before the war started? Um, of course, what we saw in uh, in uh, September uh, last year was a large reinforcement of in many cases, unwilling conscripts being sent to the front, and indeed not only unwilling but also poorly trained and poorly equipped. So even if the Russians have made some advances, um, it must be borne in mind that this is not a massive, full-strength, powerful army. One of the things that the war has done uh, in, for, the, for the world is to show that the Russian army is not actually as strong or as powerful as it tried to project its image in the years leading up to the war. It's actually been shown to be a second-rate army. And so it was, if it was second-rate in the early days of the war bring in a whole lot of conscripts who don't want to be there. Um, they, we know there's been squabbling amongst uh, the, uh, the army and the so-called private military company, Wagner, and, and others. Um, you know, this is not a, a healthy army. This is not an army which is actually enjoying the combat. Now, Ukraine has been asking for faster deliveries of military equipment. There's, there's, there's wide concern about what is happening next week when it's going to be the first anniversary of the of the invasion and and Russia is expected to have a new massive push how worried are you I am worried um, as someone who I nail my colors to the mast I think any any sensible person does they realize you know this is an unprovoked attack by Russia on Ukraine um, and yes you know I want to see Ukraine win I want to see Ukraine drive the Russians out of their country so Yes, I'm, I'm worried in the fact that you know, there is all this talk, but I'll take you back to another point last year. Before May the 9th, which of course is a huge holiday in, in Russia, the anniversary of the victory in the Second World War for the Soviet Union, um, there was a lot of talk then that might there be a nuclear attack, might there be a, a massive push. Um, there were a lot of words 
actually more than anything else. And, and Putin tried to play up the war. He, you know, he hadn't got what he wanted uh, when he invaded three months before. Um, again, I think that people have latched on to this anniversary. Um, and when I say people, I mean the Ukrainians as well, not surprisingly. It's coming up on the 24th of this month. Um, uh, to say, well, you know, Russians like to, to latch on to these particular dates. Um, it's, if the Russians try a, a mass, massive push and they're not properly prepared for it, they will be repelled. At the same time, the Ukrainians undoubtedly could do with those promises of, particularly of the tanks, which they've been having, their promises have been coming from the West now for, uh, for three weeks. They need them. They need them as soon as possible. That, that undoubtedly is the case. And once they have them, particularly the, the German Leopard 2s, if they have those in large numbers, 100 or so would, would be a really good start, then th- they are going to be in a position to resist any Russian attack. How much more equipment can the West provide in the long run? The West can, can provide quite a bit. Of course, all the equipment at the moment is, is weakening Western stocks, but they'll say, well, you know, we're not actually fighting a war at the moment, so we can afford to do that. The crucial question, and, uh, and I think it, it's one that will be answered in the next few weeks, is fighter jets, particularly the American F-16 fighters. Do you think that's going to happen? I think it is. I think the reason I think it is is because we, you know, for months, the Germans in particular were saying, no, 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 we're not going to send tanks, we're not going to send tanks, and suddenly the tanks are on their way. Um, I think the, the, the fighter jets, particularly the F-16s, are the, the next step, and I think the fact that the, the, the barrier was broken by having the tanks sent, uh, I think the West doesn't want to advertise too much to the Russians, but I think we will see fighter jets going to Ukraine before too long. Just quickly, how big of a game changer would that be? Oh, huge. It would be, I mean, that would, that, we, we've already seen with the tanks, the kind of rhetoric that came out of Moscow changed. They were terrified, they are terrified of these tanks. They said, oh, they burn like any other. No, 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 they're much better than anything the, the Russians have got. And the F-16s are better than anything the Russians have got. And a combined arms pushback by Ukraine with those tanks, with uh, F-16s, uh, really would be a game changer. Stephen Deal, thank you very much for joining us today. It's 12.10 here in London. Here is Monaco Scarlotta Rebello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Turkey has turned its focus to reconstruction, with President Recep Tayyip Erdogan encouraging those in earthquake-hit areas whose buildings have been deemed safe to return home. The combined death toll in Turkey and Syria has climbed over 41,000, and millions are in need over humanitarian aid. Australian and European Union negotiators believe they are getting closer to a free trade agreement as they race to meet a mid-year deadline. It's understood officials have finalised three chapters of the agreement on competition, telecommunications and maritime services. But Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's government warns it will not sign a deal for the sake of it. And Air India has struck a record aircraft deal, which has put the Tata Group-owned airline in the league of aspiring global carriers. It provisionally agreed to acquire almost 500 jets from Airbus and Boeing to take on domestic and international rivals. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Carlotta. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, has announced she will resign after more than eight years as head of the Scottish government. Sturgeon has been First Minister since November 2014 when she took over from Alex Salmond following the independence referendum. For the latest, I'm joined by Terry Stiasny, political journalist and author. Welcome to the programme and good afternoon. Terry, what did Sturgeon say when she announced her resignation? 
Well, this resignation really came quite unexpectedly today. Only a few weeks ago, Nicola Sturgeon had been saying the tank was full, that she wanted to continue. Um, But she said she was proud to be there as the first female uh, first minister, the longest serving incumbent. But she said also that it was part of serving well to know, she said, almost instinctively when the time has come to stand down. And she said that she, in her head and her heart, she knew that the time was now. She will stay in politics. Uh, There will be a process of electing a new party leader. She'll stay on until her successor is elected. But she really had some quite interesting words about the toll that the job has taken on her personally, about not having privacy, about the brutality of life as a politician, and really the physical and mental toll um, that the pandemic had taken on her as a leader personally. Is the impression that this resignation is not in connection to any recent controversies we've seen? Well, I think, you know, she was really trying to give the impression that this was primarily a personal decision, that she'd done something out of duty and out of love. And she said it wasn't a reaction to short-term pressures because she said, well, there are always short-term pressures in that job. However, we should point out that there have been two really difficult issues for uh, the Scottish government recently. One of those is the UK Supreme Court, which said that Scotland couldn't hold a second independence referendum unilaterally without the agreement of Westminster. And the second has been over the controversy about gender recognition. Uh, So Scotland passed a law on this making gender recognition, changing gender easier. The UK, Rishi Sunak, said he wasn't going to accept that Scottish law and he was going to block it. So there obviously are two big obstacles there in the way of greater Scottish independence and things that have been big debates in Scotland. So certainly those political pressures are there. How would you describe the reaction in the UK to her announcement? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting quite how much the SNP under Nicola Sturgeon has dominated Scottish politics. Um, You know, she's been on the scene for a long time. I think one of the things that she showed today was that she is really a pretty good communicator. I think think people thought during the pandemic that, you know, she was able to, to talk to people quite sort of clearly and in quite a personal manner. You know, she was talking today about how, you know, she was never off duty. But then she also admitted that, you know, herself as a personality could be quite sometimes override the merits of the arguments that people had a fixed view of what she was like whether they liked her whether they disliked her and she's saying that that actually made debate about some of the issues more difficult so i think she's been certainly a big, big personality in scottish and in british politics and it's not quite clear to see who will succeed her can you just tell what will happen next So, yes, what happens next is um, the SNP will go through the process of electing uh, a new party leader uh, to replace Nicola Sturgeon. As as we know, we, it's not very clear who that at the moment is likely to be. She says she will remain in office until that selection successor has been chosen. Um, she says, you know, some people will cope with that news just fine. Um, but she said that she will stay on in politics as a member of the Scottish Parliament. She believes she's still got a lot to contribute. Um, but, that you know, she just feels... Uh, Sort of that she has really given the job everything for a long time and, and doesn't feel able to carry on doing that over the next few months and years. And the Scottish, the SNP is also holding a conference shortly to, to discuss you know, what happens next in terms of independence and where they go from here. What does this resignation mean for the Scottish independence movement? How, how essential figure has Sturgeon been in that sense? 
Well, she has been a key figure in that sense. I mean, she obviously became first minister after Alex Salmond resigned. You know, he's now left the party after they had lost that referendum in 2014. She had um, a big election success, both at, at Westminster elections and in, in Scottish elections. She has done very well. The difficulty for whoever succeeds her is how do you pursue the idea of having a second referendum, something that Westminster has said it doesn't want, something that successive prime ministers have in, in London have said they don't think should happen for, you know, for the foreseeable future. So it's quite difficult to get around that, both legally and politically. And then, of course, you know, you've got the next Westminster election, which is expected to come up within about the next 18 months or so. And you've got to think how you fight that against a, a Labour Party in particular that is doing slightly better in, in the UK as a whole. Sturgeon has been in power for over eight years. What will her legacy be? Well, um, it, it's it's kind of it's difficult to say at the moment. Obviously, she has it, and many people will criticise some of the issues in Scotland. Some of the things that were raised in her press conference today were questions about education, about the state of the health service in Scotland. I mean, I think people will agree she communicated well during the pandemic and electorally she's done well. But you know, there are obviously still you know issue, big issues in Scotland. But she has been this this quite a big personality and she is quite a hard act to follow and you know obviously the SNP itself has been divided on you know Alex Salmon left to, to start his own political party so that you've got to try and find someone who can who can bring that together and who can go on to to fight election battles in the fairly short future. Terry Stiasny thank you very much for your insights it's 12:17 here in London you are with the briefing. We are staying in the UK for a bit longer. The concept of 15-minute cities has been at the centre of a new debate. Speaking in the House of Commons, Conservative MP Nick Fletcher said that such schemes would take away our personal freedom and call the idea an international socialist concept. Let's hear what he said. Will the leader please set aside some time in this house for a debate on the international socialist concept of so-called 15-minute cities and 20-minute neighbourhoods? Ultra-low emission zones in their present form do untold economic damage to any city. However, the second step after these zones will take away personal freedoms as well. Sheffield is already on this journey and I do not want Doncaster, which is also a Labour-run socialist council, to do the same. Low emission zones cost the taxpayer money, simple as. However, 15-minute cities will cost us our personal freedom and that cannot be right. Listening to that was Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, also the host of Our Cities podcast, The Urbanist. Welcome to The Briefing, Andrew. Um, What is your reaction to what you just heard? Well, look, he, he, he's, he doesn't come across as the, the best orator, the, the, the person best able to explain this concept or kind of unpack it for his audience. But he's not wrong in two or three interesting ways. So first of all, you know, urban planning is not free of politics. Urban pa- planning, all urban planning is is driven by politics. 
and by the the needs of you know of city leaders to 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 meet political aims to deliver on climate change so there is politics at play and the 15 minute city is fascinating so carlos moreno the guy who um, came up with the concept he has been shaped by his life so he was raised in latin america he was at one point a member of the anti-government uh, M19 guerrilla group in Colombia. He had to go into uh, exile in France, where he kind of changed sides and started working for the, the, the government, doing everything from nuclear power to surveillance. So then he came out the other side again, back into academia, where he undoubtedly sits on the left of politics. So when, when Nick Fletcher says it's a conspiracy and all these things, yeah, that's daft. But the ideas for the 15-minute city do probably have some socialist bedrocks in them. But if, if you look at the concept, obviously the idea of 15-minute cities is, is, is that residents can walk or cycle to the nearest shop, cafe, school or any essential service in, in a quick and easy manner. It, it makes life easier. What is controversial about that? Well, there's two or three th- things that are controversial about it. But the idea is if it's super successful... Is he's not right that you're he, he's implying you're going to be locked up in your neighborhood and you won't be able to go and do other things. That's not true. But what the ambition of it ultimately is, is that you don't leave your neighborhood so often. Is that you 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 buy your food a few hundred meters from your house, that the green space that you need to exercise is but two or three minutes from your front door. So the outcome of making a 15-minute city undoubtedly takes us back to the, the old city of you know the 1600s, 1700s, where cities were tended to be interlinked small villages. And it's, it's going back to those roots. So again, he, it, it's a bit daft, but the outcome of it is, yes, cities do want you to travel a little bit less because they, they don't know how to meet the demands of creating a, 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 a greener economy and and delivering more sustainability. If you continue to go and get in your car, if you continue to travel around the city by by car, those things are going to really trip them up. So they are encouraging the design of cities so you have to make fewer journeys and certainly fewer longer journeys. What does this kind of comments mean for the future of city planning? We've been seeing we've seen quite a few controversies here in London for example already, for example where I live the low traffic neighborhood concept is very controversial when you can't, you know, driving is not encouraged. So basically driving around where I live is a bit more difficult. And now we're hearing from MP Nick Fletcher about why he's opposing the idea of 15 minute cities. What, what does this mean for the future of city planning? Do we see these officials having to communicate better? Well, so I think you have to focus on the outcome. So the, yeah, the truth is you are going to lose some personal freedoms because you're not going to be allowed to travel as much by car. That is, if you see that as a personal freedom. But then what is the gain? The gain is that maybe your kids, when they go to school, they don't have their lungs filled with petrol. You know, that your, your health of your kids improves because they're walking and they're cycling a bit more because they feel that that's safer. So one person may lose what they, they, they see as their personal freedoms, but if the gain for the majority is much larger, then unfortunately these are the kinds of payoffs that you have to get to when you're thinking about urban design and, and making better cities. How fast do you think these things move on? How, how far will the concept of 15-minute cities get? Give it a few years. 
I think that I think is is embedded already in the city plans of many places. For for example, Anne Hidalgo in Paris has been an early adopter of it. You're seeing it picked up in cities here. But I would just say that the the, the there are a few battle lines ahead for urbanism. Urbanism will get more and more political because we're coming up to this deadline in many European cities, 2035, when you will not be able to drive a vehicle unless it's electric, and lots of very ordinary people won't be able to meet that target. So expect urbanism to stay a rambunctious, aggressive, sometimes chaotic scene. I also expect the urbanist team of ours being very busy <laughs> in the months and years to come. Andrew Tuck, thank you very much for joining us here on Monocle 24. The Concierge from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners, is coming soon to Monocle 24 and all good audio platforms. Just like Monocle's editors, Allianz Partners is committed to helping you build exceptional experiences whenever you're traveling. That's what makes this a perfect partnership. The Concierge program brings all the best of Monocle's award-winning and beloved coverage of travel from print and digital to the airwaves. You'll hear insider insights and ideas about where the world is heading, plus tips on packing your bags for the must-see destinations new openings, and the loveliest spots to lay your head. So get out there and visit the places, enjoy the experiences, and meet the people changing the world of hospitality for the better. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Welcome back to The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippidis. 21.25 in Tokyo, 14.25 in Helsinki and 12.25 here in London. We continue with a look at some of the week's biggest fashion news. I'm joined in the studio by Natalie Theodosi, Monaco's fashion editor. Welcome to the programme. An announcement that has got an incredible amount of attention today. Farrell Williams has been named as creative director of Louis Vuitton menswear. What is your reaction to this, Natalie? It was a big surprise, I think. Um, the fashion world has been waiting for over a year and a half for the position to be filled after the previous men's artistic director, Virgil Abloh, passed away in 2021. I thought it was a very interesting move by Louis Vuitton. Pharrell Williams, of course, is not a traditional designer, but he has run his own fashion and beauty brands. He has run hotels and he's an entertainer. So I think in a way it, he's actually even better equipped to deal with the demands of uh, a brand the size of Louis Vuitton. It's it's a brand that whose revenues are twenty billion dollars, the, the biggest one in the world. Um, and uh, he he has multifaceted skills that can live up to the demands of that job, which include. Uh, putting together these large-scale shows, uh, opening stores, coming up with uh, com- campaign concepts. It's not just about designing collections, so he could be a great fit. So when I heard the news, I was I was thinking about what this tells us about who can become a fashion designer nowadays. How controversial has this appointment been? It has been quite controversial and a lot of uh, fashion industry professionals have reacted against it. They were hoping that the position would be filled by one of the menswear talents uh, like Martin Rose or Grace Wells Bonner, uh, who are more traditionally trained designers. But I think there's a difference between being a designer and being an artistic director where you have to uh, 
look at all these other elements of the brand, whether it's the stores, concept, shows. So it depends. Nowadays, you have to decide whether you want to be a designer or if you have ambitions to be a creative director. What do you expect now from Farrell Williams? God, it's I, I, it's never it's never been done before. Um, uh, someone who is not a traditional designer at all to to take on this position. So, I think expect the unexpected. Anything can happen, but definitely, I think their ambitions are really large. And they spoke about turning Louis Vuitton into a cultural house, not just a fashion house. So, a lot of projects beyond fashion as well, including um, the hotel that they're planning to open in Paris in around five years' time. We also. We've also, we also got news from the rival Caring. There's a new creative director at Gucci and we're also seeing efforts to rebrand Balenciaga. Shall we start with news from Gucci? Yes, so unlike the big, bold announcements of uh, LVMH and Louis Vuitton at Caring, I think um, there's uh, a bit more trouble and, and more transitions. Uh, Gucci announced um, the, a new creative director, Sabato de Sarno, and they are trying to completely rebrand uh, what Gucci stands for, moving into uh, more classic uh, clothes, a lot of tailoring, they're opening up luggage stores, but it remains to be seen if such a complete uh, turn from what they've been known for will work and, and if their formula will be successful. And it's the same with uh, Balenciaga, another one of the of the big high-earning brands uh, of caring. Uh, they are planning a return to the catwalk this March during Paris Fashion Week and they've uh, issued uh, this this past week apologies for a series of um, quite insensitive campaigns that had been linked to child pornography. But the reaction so far is that it's too little, too late. And um, it rem- again, it, it will be hard for them to bounce back and to keep up with the sales that they used to have before those campaigns um, were were. were published. Well, Natalie, you are now getting prepared for the London Fashion Week. It starts on Friday. What is to come? London Fashion Week is um, quite a a smaller, calmer fashion week. There's a lot of young talent. That's where the LVMHs and the Carings usually come to to find young talent that graduates from Central St. Martin. So the scale of the shows is smaller, but we are going to have, for the first time in quite a few years, two uh, bigger names uh, on the calendar. Burberry is back with a new creative director as well, Daniel Lee, who used to head uh, Bottega Veneta. Um, and uh, they've already teased um, that uh, comeback with a new logo and um, uh, talk about returning to the company's British roots. And also Moncler um, and its Moncler Genius um, brand are going to be uh, staging this big uh, scale presentation on the Monday evening at the London Olympia Centre. It's open to the public, which usually doesn't happen Mm -hmm. with with fashion shows. And they will be introducing a series of collaborations with um, companies like Mercedes. So again, not uh, traditional design collaborations and people can buy tickets and um, go and see it. London Fashion Week begins on Friday indeed. That was Monaco's fashion editor, Natalie Theodosia, and that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Carlotta Rebello. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintu, and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time at midday London time. I am Marcus Hippi. Thanks for listening.